0: All right, so welcome to our first ever book club. Full disclosure, I've never hosted a book club, nor have I ever attended one. So if this goes off the rails, I'm assigning the role of interventionist to any of the other people on this call to redirect us. Um, The idea of this book club started from our peak collaborative uh, when we discussed online teaching during the pandemic. Um, and started to really wrap our heads around the future of teaching um, in the pandemic and also online. And so the book we're discussing today is titled Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology by Dr. Michelle Miller. Uh, This was suggested by Michael Hempill actually, as a part of that collaborative. And we decided to get a copy uh, before it sold out um, and read it over summer. So, then I decided to email Michelle to see if she'd be willing to randomly come on and talk about it, and she agreed, so she's here with us today. Um, so when any of us talk uh, the first time, just uh, introduce yourself by your name and where you teach so people know who we are, because this is a podcast and not a, uh, a video conference, even though it's a video conference. Uh, so that said, let me introduce Dr. Miller and start this off with a question directed at her, and we'll go forward with our conversation. So. Uh, Dr. Michelle Miller is the author of the book, um, and she serves as a professor of psychological sciences and President's Distinguished Teaching Fellow at Northern Arizona University. Her academic background is in cognitive psychology, so we're going to teach her all about teaching physical education. Uh, Her research interests include memory, attention, and student success in the early college career. So uh, let's start off with the first question what is your pitch to faculty that are going to be teaching 100 percent online next semester i mean you didn't write this book to assume that the vast majority of the global faculty would be teaching online but it does look like it may be the reality for the next semester or maybe even the year so michelle oh and,
1: and and hi everybody and thanks so much for for joining in today i know we all we all have so many meetings so hopefully this will be a, a bright spot i know it will be for me um, so uh so faculty are going to be teaching 100 online next semester well i mean just especially based on the the conversation that we've kind it of had uh kind of warming up um you know a lot of us cited the, the challenge um and so the first thing i would i would not do is say like well it's, you know just easy and just do 15 trainings and get perfect on all the lingo and everything. It, it is, I mean, con- converting any class to any modality is going to be work. It's going to be a lot of work. Um, you know, I, I'll share with you just a, a personal story from right around the time. I think you remember Friday the 13th in March when, and we were asked to quote unquote pivot as if it's easy, all of our courses, um and we didn't have any extra time we had about three days not everybody made this and people were just you know we were uh even those of us who kind of know and have taught online or really set back by this um, i posted on my personal social media just a snarky bit of snark i said uh you know can anybody remember the keyboard shortcut for converting your your class to online because You know, I can't remember, is it like the control, shift, and then four, and you hit the space bar with your elbow, and it all goes online, and I was kidding. I posted that, and somebody, you know, one of my associates, like, messaged me and said, is there really a keyboard shortcut for that? And I said, no, no, there's not a keyboard shortcut for it, because it really is um, a different mindset, and while it can, and there's some evidence out there since I wrote the book that it can spark some real good, um, productive reflection. Um, it does spark us, you know, cause we have to, we have to back out and say, well, what is this course really about? What are the essentials, um, you know, to get us out of a familiar format? So it can be good, but on the other hand, under these circumstances, I also have really pushed back against the, oh, it's all a big blessing in disguise narrative. It is, it, it's hard and it is work, especially if you do want to do it well. So I want to acknowledge that, um, but at the same time, you know, the good things are that at this point, kind of in this juncture of pedagogical history, um, you may be closer than you think. Um, I, I think that many of us these days at least are familiar with the learning management system. Uh, many of us have had, if not a formal course of our own that we've taken online, um, we've done something, some kind of professional development or something else that gives us that perspective, right? So. We probably, I I like to demystify it at this point, too. Um, And if you do want to learn about the basics of setting up online courses and learn about all the different options and different ways that they can look, we have so many resources at this point. Sort of an embarrassment of riches. So so that's all really good. I think it's good to remind ourselves, too, that our students um, need practice with online learning itself. Um, because it does require a different, somewhat different set of skills and an ability. You know, without that, okay, I go sit in a room and, you know, wait for the teacher to tell me to do things. Uh, without that, I, I do need to, to really um, be a little bit more proactive in figuring out, okay, what's expected? How am I doing? And so much of the world, even, I mean, I, I don't think we are going to absent an extended crisis go to all online I think we passed that juncture a long time ago Um, however some aspect of the students learning professional development and career development going forward is going to be online so I think like about um, my husband's an instructional designer and he worked for a while back on uh, helping a state uh, small business association take all of its training materials and put them online just very basic stuff and this is traditionally if i wanted if i'm starting a business and i need to know a couple of basics i would go to my local community college in person and that's how a uh, small business center felt would happen. but now if i want that um got nothing to do with you know school quote unquote but that is an online course so i'm going to need that so students are going to have an edge too if they do have these good experiences online so you know to, as much as i can give a a pitch for it um I think I can Uh, with that big acknowledgement that, yeah, it is work, oftentimes uncompensated work. And it will be a different landscape with students uh, who not only didn't sign up for this, for having a big chunk of their college education be online, but it it gets tied up with maybe a lot of the other negativity and and uncertainty at this time. And and that I think we're just going to see how it works out. But at least that applies to all of us. We are in this boat. And yeah. to me, really focusing on that mission that students have continuity. And if we can provide that, great. So that, that would was, be that was what I would say. What, what do you all think about that?
0: Yeah, I think the the part you said about the students needing to learn the skills as well, I realized that I made a huge mistake in, you know, my I teach a summer and a fall course 100% online for our master students. And the whole beginning of it is our... Very similar to what you talk about in the book, these small stakes. I have a, a orientation quiz. I have modules on how to upload videos and how how to access uh, access the discussion board and all of those things. And they were very successful with it. When we did the control F elbow pivot to online in my undergraduate class, I made the assumption that I had already taught them this in their pre. Um, like beginning of the year seminar, but we started in person. So I never showed them how to upload videos. So when I asked for the first assignment, they were all over the place. And I'm like, why are why are they doing this so much differently than the master students? Is it because of, you know, whatever, an experience or whatever it is? And then I realized I never taught them. I just made the assumption that the students knew exactly what to do. So I don't know if you've had similar experiences in, in your classes, but... That's the one thing that I'm really focusing on is that first week of teaching exactly how to do certain aspects and not making that assumption.
2: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And when I read that in the book, I was like, this is, so." sorry, this is Jamie McMillan from University of Northern Colorado. Um, when I, I read that in the book, I was like, I do the same thing. We have an online master's program and I have like an introductory module where I have them access different parts of the learning management system and do all these things. And while my undergrad students work with the learning management system, very basic functions are what we use when it's an in-person class. And so, um, you know, I had them doing like, have, I was using the peer review function and all of these things that they'd never used before. And I didn't teach them how to do it. And, and again, I think there's two things at play. One, and you referenced this in the book, is this idea that we assume that yet this younger generation just knows how to do all of these things because, um, you know, and, and Michael brought this up actually in the um, RP collaborative and in, in why he referenced this book was talking about this idea that while they're good at social media, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're good at technology and things. And so that was something that I know, I know I failed at. Um, and then... The other thing that I want to pick up on that you talked about is like this demystifying, you referred to demystifying online education. And I think you're right. I think that so many of the things that we do could be more easily moved to online than we think that they could be. Um, it's just about our own creativity and ability to think differently about the content that we deliver. Um, and I think for me, my biggest struggle is I actually think that there's a lot of what I can do in my classes, that could be as effective or maybe even more effective online. Um, I just worry about this idea of motivating students, which we might get to, I think later um, in the conversation, um, but you know, how do I get my students to engage? And in the format that we were, where we had to make that quick pivot, we had two days at, at UNC. Um, our students didn't sign up for online classes. They weren't expecting it. They weren't excited about it. And they just didn't really want to engage in the ways that we would have liked them to. So I think going into the fall with an awareness, not only for us as faculty, but for them as students, that they're going to have to engage more online. And this is where I wish universities would be a little bit more transparent about that, Um, rather than just saying, yep, we're going to be on campus and it's going to be just like normal, because it isn't. Um, That's the piece I think for me, that I'm gonna have to really think about is how to really engage my students in these alternative uh, methods.
3: So, yeah, Michael Hintle from UNC Greensboro and- um, Hi, Michael. Hi, good to see you. Um, And so one idea that I think from the book, it talked about the common core shell. And I think to the extent departments or universities can create some synergy across course structures uh, would be really helpful. There could be something like a instructional video that's included in all courses or all courses in the Department of Kinesiology, you know, how to access material. Um, Because for an undergrad, if you think about taking five different courses online, I mean, they could be getting a flurry of emails, uh, five different due date structures, five different expectations for online conversations, Um, So I think we've been socializing online to do it in our own individual space, and that's been good. But in this, like, emergency moment, I think we would do our students uh, a real service to um, synergize things and make their life a little bit easier. Um, Now, I know that we don't have a lot of time to have these department meetings where we would cook up all these ideas and structures, but, you know, to the extent possible... I think that's going to go a long way to help students, especially those who struggle um, with using this type of technology.
1: Well, you know, and that's that, I think, is the kind of creativity we're going to need. And, and in the context where Minds line was originally written, um, you know, I, I, looking back, it, it, it was, as you said, kind of in this model of socialization where you do your own thing. Right. But that's a threat that's been around for for a while in progressive pedagogy and now i'm kind of saying that we need to revive it this idea that sometimes courses can be better when they aren't just in you know the class equals this person's class um which is not about you know taking things away or, or standardizing them in some kind of assembly line fashion but if we're going to get this done in the fall yeah what can we do instead of having five people who don't, maybe don't even know how to make videos that well. So it's going to be hard and time consuming for them. And they're all going to make individual videos if there, if there's any way to do double duty with those, then how can we do that? I think, you know, it strikes me as well, especially when we are talking about something that is, you know, at least in this space between a very general academic skill, how do you navigate an online course or digital literacy and something that's discipline specific as long as it's not so incredibly discipline specific or course specific i think looping in the library um so many schools are 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 having uh their library and their librarians who are information specialists after all um create these uh, types of resources that can be shared and most importantly can conserve faculty time for other things so i would really like to see more institutions this summer as we are all kind of desperate say oh my gosh how this going to happen um as to really be specific about okay we need you to construct x y and z with these objectives we want our students to be able to do a b and c we would love to have a module can you help us and you know sometimes the capacity isn't there but oftentimes in universities i find there are these little pockets of capacity of people who are great instructional designers uh, who have the, the the tools to make these kinds of media or modules. And it's a matter of just tapping into them and connecting to them. Um, and yeah, that it is one of those, these, and I still see it's very frustrating. Uh, you'll say, well, we need help with getting students ready for online teaching. And you get like, okay, well, here's the website you can read about teaching students. It's Like, no, we need you to actually do the module or they go and they do it and they say hi we have this module use it you go well this isn't exactly what we wanted so what i mean wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually connect people who love to make these kinds of things with those of us who really need it just a thought
0: a decent thought at that (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we uh we have some resources from our library that I link to. I think one of the issues is that when the content isn't specific to the class, there's that disconnect in how to do it, but I think that you know, making those making those videos early on and making them a part of like this as an assignment that you have to do this and report back and answer these small quizzes and that was a, I think that was one of the biggest things that I got from the book was this part about the online uh, low-stakes quizzes or uh, the ones that you can take as many times as possible and importing a, a test data bank from a book and just you know using those and and i never I, I do it in my first module but from then on i've never really used these online quizzes and now and after reading the book i'm like i I think I might be wasting my time, you know, like not doing them because they they self-grade, they, you know, make sure that the students are c- getting the material, you know, the fear of, well, I don't want to use this test bank, these test bank questions because I want to use those later on in the semester. Like, just don't give those multiple choice tests, right? So those are really good for, for getting, making sure that students are utilizing that information so i'd like to hear from the rest of you all if, if this is something that you've used or started using or what your experiences in these low stakes tests and then maybe michelle you can jump in after ingrid on kind of the the cognitive psychology of it um so go ahead ingrid yeah so
4: i really enjoyed reading about that too because i also teach and I have for maybe five or six years uh, an online course that takes place in our short spring semester. And we use eConnect, um, which I, I have a love hate relationship, right? Um, it grades everything for me, which is great, you know, but I didn't really think about how much time that was saving me until we had to switch everything over. And so when I read this in the book and I started thinking about my career, my one class that I already was doing online, I thought, oh, well, when I have those modules open, they can take those quizzes as many times as they want. It's a health and wellness class, so I'm not, uh, I'm more concerned that they're understanding the concepts and then applying them, right? And so I don't care how many times they take the quiz, as long as they do it. Um, Oh, sorry, Michael, I thank you for the reminder. (laughs) Um, so yeah, my name is Ingrid. I work at Grand Valley State University. It's in West Michigan, Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan. Um, it's a liberal arts institution. We have about 25,000 students. Um, and so I, when I read that in the book, I started thinking about that and I thought, you know, I, I maybe need to do this on a regular basis, not necessarily with another eConnect, but within my own Uh, university we use blackboard um, because I want students to master some of these things right and I don't care if it takes them one time or 13 times I want them to be able to write a decent learning objective I want them to understand the difference between teaching games for understanding and sport ed right and so I, I think that I'm definitely going to try, I don't know exactly how yet, but I, I'm going to try to maximize my time uh, instead of spending all my time on the computer, you know, as well by setting these things up ahead of time. So I've really, i really appreciated reading and hearing about that.
1: Oh, I, I, I'm so pleased that, you know, the way that you've articulated that, that but... And, and what comes through as well is a theme that I've been just increasingly just pushing. I probably should, you know, I could have pushed this a little harder in, in Minds Online, but it just hadn't gelled yet. But that we really do, it's not this either or choice, right? We we traditionally had this dichotomy of, do you want students to be able to think and apply, or do you want memorization and knowledge? And I want both, and it's reasonable to have both. And we now have research that shows when you... When you do have a better command of that basic factual knowledge, it doesn't ensure, doesn't guarantee that you can apply it. But you're going to be better when you do try to apply it. So it actually, these two things support each other. They're not this either, you know, one or the other. That, so I really like how to get that undercurrent of what you're saying, that you have set this bar. I want both, um, and you are, and I love how you're going to focus your time, too, not on like, well, you know, did you get question six, uh, but you're going to focus on the application of what they know and i think that uh, you know it, it's come up as well okay so you have test banks and you know the technology can also be efficient but i will uh, throw this idea out that maybe more people will, will use um as we do hopefully have more people emphasizing retrieval practice and quizzing especially in their fully online courses where we really do need that that solid base of knowledge to have um, wouldn't it be cool? You can also uh, share this, especially if you have students who are more advanced, more mature, they can share the load of writing questions. So that can be a part of it too. Um, and I've I played around with this some in, in a face-to-face class that I've, I've had uh, research methods. You know so I, I, I make the pitch about retrieval practice and active learning, but then we make good on it. So I, if I'm thinking back to what we did, like one you know the first class meeting of the week, Uh, You come in and you write me up uh, three different questions. Um, And you can constrain, make it multiple choice or whatever if you want. Um, I go through them. I pick the best. And then on the the next class meeting, we take that quiz. So I'm kind of envisioning that, too. I mean, why not have students make that as an assignment, which is good for their studying? Uh, I I think that will be a very rich learning assignment in and of itself. And then you get a little boost if your uh, questions get picked and then we all have the benefit of even more retrieval practice without you know exhausting a testing if we don't have a big one or exposing you know those questions we don't want to do that or if we're just tired of writing questions so yeah why not be creative it does require that we kind of give over more of the course to that and if we're teaching online that whole thing of you know we might that whole uh, time allocation might be a little bit more fluid but you know, if we do turn it over and trust the process, I mean, everything in the research, even since the book has just piled up and piled up that retrieval practice, I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It helps you learn to think. It helps you uh, develop knowledge quickly. Uh, I mean, it's like, it it is, if there's a miracle product in education, it's that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I've I've used that before in, in other classes going into the final and saying okay come up with questions put them in index cards and and I've never even thought about doing that for an online class which would be just the same and you know even I've been playing around now we use blackboard um, and I've been playing around with uh, multiple choice questions so when you uh, you can put a incorrect response prompt which you think about a traditional multiple choice test that you give and it's on Scantron and you take the Scantron back, you take it to your office, you run the Scantron and then like the next class period or whatever, you give them back and all they see is A wrong, B wrong. And you can go through that test in class. Whereas in these low stakes tests, B was wrong. It automatically says, why do you think this or think about this and this? for your next time around and so i think in certain cases and you've brought this up in the book and in this conversation that it is actually there are certain parts about online education that can be way better than in-person traditional and i think multiple choice tests in in that format are something that you could use i don't use in my traditional classes a lot most of it is applying short answer papers things like that but having those formative assessments have totally changed what I'm thinking now. Well, Sarah, were you gonna jump in on something?
5: I was, hi, I'm Sarah Flory, I'm a, an associate professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Uh, and, you know, I, we sort of, we have a similar, um, we have like a department at our university that uh, that it's called Innovative Education, and they are amazing because they help you convert courses and do all these things. And and um, I just had to convert a course recently. Um, that is a general education course, and you have up to eighty students in this course at the same time, and that was a little overwhelming to think about having to grade and review and do all these things um, with. With that many students at the same time, so I got real familiar with um, a particular uh, textbook publisher that that integrates, you know, the the quiz questions as as they're reading and and um, you know creating uh, tests from te- quizzes from test banks and things like that and. Um, and with content that I think is actually really interesting it's a sports sociology course, but it's again, it's just a general education course. So having that option and, and knowing that, you know, in a few semesters, I can just go in and change those questions up to prevent, you know, cheating or, you know, all those different websites that exist where students just post the answers everywhere. We know what happens. It's fine. Um, but I really, I love the option of giving students multiple opportunities to learn. Um, I actually really shifted the way I thought about teaching when we all were forced online because suddenly I was like, you know, who am I to say that a student has to finish a module or a quiz by this date? Like, can't I be flexible with this considering that maybe they're caring for a loved one or or working just whenever they can or, you know, and they, they can't move on to the next module before this happens? So that really... Um, that's kind of like, I'm, I'm, I keep like stepping back and thinking like, what have I been doing all these years that I'm like, Oh no, you must follow my regimen, my schedule, all these things. So it really has made me like, I kind of felt like I was a compassionate educator before, but now I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, was I just like a drill sergeant. Like, so I'm, I'm really having to adjust those things. Um, and yeah, like the, all of the opportunities to to let students learn at their own pace, because that's what, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. So um, I was really excited to read about some of that within the book. So that's that's my take, Listo. Thanks for noticing me.
3: Thanks for joining.
2: If I can jump in, it's Jamie again. I so I philosophically I've convinced myself over the years that I don't like quizzes, I don't like multiple choice tests, like it's like this um I don't know. It's like a superiority comp, like something like, Oh, I can design a better assessment than a multiple choice test. And, and I call the multiple guess test because I think most of our students just guess anyway. And, and so it was really funny because I was reading in the book and I have to admit (laughs) when I was reading it, I was like, I was like, Oh, this is dumb. Like I'm not going to put in all these multiple choice tests. And then as you started to explain in the book, like the actual like cognitive piece behind it and the low stakes and letting them try again. I was like, this is actually no different than me asking, um, you know, questions in class and like having students respond in that way. And I, I really shifted my thinking. And so now I'm like, I'm going to have all of these low stakes quizzes throughout my test and my students are going to laugh like, cause they've been with, you know, I my students over and over again, cause they're going to all of a sudden see all these multiple choice quizzes that I've, spoken out about like, against, you know, for their whole educational careers. And, but I think, you know, Rissa started with this idea of like you kind of explaining the the cognitive piece behind that. And I think that would be really valuable for people listening to understand that. Cause I think there are a lot of people like me that, that have this preconceived notion of the value of multiple choice um, quizzes and um, how you, refer to them in the book as like more of a learning tool. And those types of things, I think was um, very life changing for me from that standpoint.
0: Yeah, and I I think you're spot on there. I think there are a lot of things in this book that that made you think differently. And, you know, I think quizzes are one thing. Um, And for those of you that haven't read the book, it is available on Kindle still, you did sell out of the book on Amazon, which is pretty nice as a, as a academic. Um, But, you know, like even reading through there, this is something that only in the last like two or three years, I found out that the theory behind a visual auditory and kinesthetic learner is debunked, right? So I remember like four years ago in a class, this is, this is what I was teaching, so i was talking to my students and saying so remember you have to take care of the visual auditory and kinesthetic learners and adjust your pedagogy to suit the needs of these students and and i remember reading that from the textbook that i was teaching from and now i i maybe i heard this on npr i don't know where i heard it but i heard it somewhere before and it totally took me back like that's not true And so I think that section and maybe you can speak to that, Michelle, um, in that section in your book about kind of debunking that that theory um, and how students actually learn and how that uh, goes on online.
1: Oh, wow. Well, that's I mean, that's a a great endorsement uh, to, you know, and and I I do and I'm really I mean, what better? thing to hear as an author that uh, okay i i like this and i adopted it and i'm, I'm seeing you know hopefully we'll see the benefits of, and i'd encourage you too, to share with this the students and just like we want to pull back the curtain on a lot of learning processes for ourselves um i think that there's kind of been a taboo against that or we feel like we don't have time or, or something just to say hey here's why the multiple choices are here i mean when, when david was talking about well my students are going to come in and they're going to see this Change when I, I never had this feature before. And now we do. And, uh, you know um, it's it's really it's fun conversations to have with students sometimes to say, yeah, well, did you did you know this about quizzing? It's really cool. It's like this huge time saver, and you know you can come up with examples from real life, and it's lots of fun. Um, but yes, visual, auditory, <laughs> kinesthetic learning. Wow. Um, you know when I first um, stepped into my first uh, cognitive Psychology class at NAU twenty years ago. First time it was mine. That was the first time I ever heard of uh, that theory as well. Students partway through the semester, well, you know, what about visual learning? Learning, and I was like, well, I never heard of that. And explain the theory, and so well, that that doesn't sound that doesn't sound plausible. I don't understand. And I sort of forgot about it for a couple of years, and then studies started coming out that really did pin down that number one learning style is not a stable thing. And if you ask people what they think their learning style is, and then you give them a learning style inventory, it, it's all over the map. So, and, you know, I kid sometimes, like, people come and say, you know, I'm a visual learner. And I think, well, a third of your cortex, because you're from the human species, you're a visual learner. Most of your brain is for vision. We're very, very visual. It's like admitting, oh, you know, I had that dream about my teeth falling out. It's like, I'm a psychologist. I tell you, everybody has that dream and people's minds are explode. So first of all, you know, it, it almost always, people have this visual bent that they think is unique to them. Which, you know, maybe that's not terrible, but it does have these possible consequences down the line. Now, this is not as well researched, but... There's, you know, a lot of people who work in this space will say, and I've seen it myself too, that students will kind of pigeonhole themselves, or it's a way to shut down their own kind of growth mindset, you know, because the teacher lectured too much, so I can't, you know, uh, but I'm just kind of a learner, um, and it isn't, it isn't true to how the brain processes information. Um, the brain has real I mean, so much of your cortex isn't a vision, it's for processing other sensory input. I mean we're we're about this much for higher thought processes as you know cognitively and this much for sensation and integrating everything that's coming in. So your brain doesn't just, you know, code something, it came in visual, slot it over here, came in auditory, slot it over here. These things are always melding. Um you know, for example we know from studies of language that, that we really rely more than we realize on people reading people's lips as they speak. And so your brain is constantly calibrating between, okay, I heard this and I saw this. So given that there's all this sort of bleed over and integration going on among your senses, it doesn't make sense that your brain would plot these in different ways. And, And you think as well, studies of reading tell us that, for example, if we're, we're, uh, reading about a visual scene you're reading about harry potter you know running through some some scene your brain is visualizing that so you read it uh language is primarily auditory so your auditory cortex is, is doing all this is stimulating a sound and you're stimulating a visual spatial experience at the same time so you can do that inside of your brain recoding is great and sensations of different kinds are very important for learning but that's the thing is the brain is a massive integration and recoding device. So by all means, if visualization helps you learn, visualize like crazy, even if you're listening to it. Uh, for me, my little quirk is if I can verbalize something like a process, um, I understand it better. So even if I'm looking at, say, a staff equation, if I talk through the parts that works for me, but that's not dependent on the teacher doing, you know, this in any particular way. So, so anyway, those are some reflections on it. But yeah, since I wrote Minds Online, more and more people have gotten, you know, have really taken this idea on head, you know, head on. And I think it's great. Yeah.
0: And, and I think, Jamie, what you, what you put in the chat there is that most PE students will say, I'm a kinesthetic learner. And I, and I would say, well, of course, if you're learning a skill, it's very hard to read the skill critical elements and then watch somebody do it. So now I'm like, I'm not a visual or an auditory learner. I can, o- I only learn through doing. Well, yes, but you did look at the critical elements and you saw me do it before you, and now you're doing it yourself. So I, I think that's, that's an interesting uh, crossover. I think one of the theories that hasn't been debunked is that we are social learners and we learn through being together and learning together. Um, And so I was wondering if any of you have really good community building uh, activities or introduction activities that you have in your classes. Um, So for my class in in the beginning, I always introduce myself via video. So there is a about your instructor page that has text and my photo and all the contact information and stuff. But then I do a video, and at the end of the video, I always ask a question, and I ask the students to also ask a question. So, this summer class that I'm starting in a couple weeks has a question that says, and I've I've asked this to Michael Hempel, I'm sure, uh, what is the two-year period of your life that you've uh, experienced the most personal growth? And so, while the when the students go through and watch my video, the last question is that, and I say answer that in the chat if you want. And then at the end of your video, one of the things is ask a question. So then it creates this kind of ongoing, very in-depth, not necessarily anything about health education or physical education, but I learn more about my students that way. So I'm not, I'm not sure if you have other ideas or other things that you've used in your classes. Uh,
3: gonna... uh, oh, go ahead,
0: Michael.
4: Um,
0: a
3: couple so... I think doing things in relation to the content are, seem to be most helpful, in my opinion, because students, they get this first day of class conversation so many times. they tell me one unique thing about yourself, and that's a good way to learn about people. But you know, if you're teaching a class, that's um, I teach a class on sport-based youth development, and so I'm sharing experience about myself and sports and the way that impacted my development and asking people to draw that out from their story. And it's possible then to map back to that later in the semester as you dig into content. So I think that's helpful knowing that students might have to do this icebreaker five times, you know, online this the semester. And I've just mentioned, I know just enough uh, to get me in trouble about this community of inquiry framework. Um, I have a doctoral student who studied it. And it's just this idea of having a balance of social engagement, cognitive engagement, and then that's um, kind of a teaching presence in the course So balancing that social with engagement um, across the course. That seems to have kind of as a broad framework, a way to um, look at structuring these types of things in courses.
4: So I, I have been doing something similar, Risto, in that um, I started using Flipgrid about three years ago and I would let students when we would do like discussion board topics or things like that, or even reflections on their own teaching, I would let them have a choice. You can either respond traditionally, you know, written words, or you can use the Flipgrid video and I would set it at like three minutes max or whatever and respond. And I found by doing that, not only did I get more responses, but the responses were better. They were more reflective. They were thorough. Uh, because I was getting frustrated with the discussion piece because they were just phoning it in. They were doing it to get the five points or the three points or whatever. But when I gave them that option to go to video, 95% of them went to that and it was better. Um, And so that's one thing that has been helpful. And I think just by giving them choice sometimes, uh, because what does it matter to me, right? Like if it comes in in paper or if it comes in in video and um, a couple weeks ago, I was taking a, a webinar class from my university because I've taken about a gazillion of them this summer, you know, to be a better online instructor. And this, this one was about how to integrate Google, more Google things into Blackboard. Um, and I don't know about you, but lots and lots of my students, when they go out to teach around here in Michigan, they're Google classrooms. And so I've been having to get better at Google over the last couple of years. And so by taking this course that I have, so I haven't done this intro, but I'm going to do it in my classes. You just create a Google slide. Every put the name of your students on everyone. And I start with me. And it's just like, I'm sharing like five things, um, about me that would be interesting or, you know, like where I went to college, uh, or I really like frogs and turtles, you know, like random things. Um, but in asking them to include picture, video, words, like whatever works for them, and then everyone kind of has that. And I, I haven't done it yet, but it seems like that would be something, another way to sort of introduce ourselves, build this community, and not have it be a typical share five things about yourself on the discussion board.
0: Yeah. So, and I, I've seen a lot of those um, trainings as well of using – uh, Google Slides synchronously and the people that do it really well, it's really engaging and I, I love it. Um, I'd love to pick anybody's brain about the Flipgrid piece because um, what I've realized is so for Blackboard we have the add-on, it's Kaltura Media and then you basically use that to either screen record or upload videos and the benefit I have with that is Let's say they're making a group project and or they're giving a presentation that's seven minutes. The benefit with Kaltura is that I can speed up the video 1.5 times. So if they're doing voice over PowerPoint lecture style, a lot of the students talk very slowly. And so when I put 1.5 times, it's like a person that just talks very fast. But it cuts down on me watching a 25-minute video to like 17 minutes. If I do, if they talk really slowly, then I go two times speed, and I actually am still understanding what they're saying. But I, I feel that if I do it with Flipgrid, then I'm stuck listening at the same speed. So, Sarah, you're laughing. So, I'll let you jump in.
5: Whoa, slow down! Some of us are over 50. Okay. <laughs> I'm laughing because when you were talking slowly, Jamie just wrote in the chat that she thought your connection was going out and I thought it was too. Um, I'm, I'm laughing for a variety of reasons. I am, unfortunately, I'm going to be honest and say that I have not done anything super interactive with my courses yet as far as introductory activities. I'm the, tell me three things, like it's so boring. But this is a sticky note that I just took off my window. My, my home office is what we'll call it. It's really like, it's the bonus room. It's the, it's the laundry room slash bike storage. You can see on the zoom, but it's right next to a window. And in a previous peak collaborative call, I just started writing down all these notes and Risto knows this. I'll text him sometimes the number of resources that got shared with us this spring about all the things you can use, like, Oh, log in to to Google and then you go to doodle and then you go on the zing, zang and, and flippity flop. And like, I'm just like, Whoa, this is all a lot for me. And I know that it's time for me to like get to the, you know, get up to 2020 speed. So this is a little sticky note of all the little things that I need to look in, into about incorporating into my classes in the fall and Flipgrid is my top one, because it seems super duper um, simple, which I need. Uh, my students do too, though. They need to be, you know, because they can just do it from their phones. Um, but like, all you know, all these different, um, that's my, that's my one, like, I guess fear or concern is that, you know, we, we can't expect ourselves to just jump in and start using 12 different technologies because if we don't have a good handle on them, like, neither are our students. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm, to, I'm making that effort to, um, you know, be better about that because I think it is, especially for me, the, junior, um, the juniors that will enter this fall will be in a new cohort together, and they're probably, we're going to be all online. So, like, building community is like going to be super important. So I, especially because they're going to be with one they take classes together for the next five semesters. So I really want to build community and um, ensure that they're, you know, they don't feel like they're just, you know, talking to other faces on the computer screen all semester long. So um, I'll thank you, Ingrid, for the encouragement. Ingrid is saying nice things in the chat about I can do it. So thank you very much. So that's all I have to say.
2: (laughs) I agree. I feel like so our cohorts know each other so well that, and, and particularly I get our master's students after they've already met each other. So I feel really selfish doing these getting to know you community builder things, because it's really for me, like they already kind of know each other by that point, And particularly with my undergrad students, but I tend to do something at the start of secondary methods, which is I have in the fall. Where I have students write on, I I do attendance like on note cards and super old school and whatever. And so they write their name and like their preferred name and all these things on the, and then the back side, I have them write um, three to four questions that they would like answered in secondary methods. And I use that, we have six weeks before they go out on practicum, and I use that to really actually design what we're going, what I'm gonna teach for the next six weeks. And I try to pull out their questions and say, you know six of you asked a question about this on your note card so i'm going to do this now and i was trying to think as everyone was talking like could i just put that into a discussion board but it's a really kind of vulnerable place to put students in for them to disclose things they don't know something about and so i do feel like there still needs to be some kind of private mechanism for that um but you know i i so i kind of flip-flopped i was like oh i could just do that in the discussion board have them do their things but Are they going to be as open saying, I don't know any management strategies to use in um, high school physical education. And then one of their peers is going to see that on the discussion board and be like, you know, you dummy, like we learned all about that in this class. Like, how do you not know that? And so I think there's a piece about the online environment that is so public um, that, that, is more vulnerable than maybe raising your hand in class and no one's gonna remember that you said that, but on a discussion board or something, people can go back to it and see it over and over again. And so I don't know if anyone has like any kind of thoughts about that or, and I know I just totally took
1: the conversation off track. Sorry, Risto.
0: All good, anybody wanna respond to that? Yeah, I I'll just say that I, I've
1: had, par- I've, I've worried about it uh, a lot too. And I, I like the way you've articulated something that I think it was just kind of unformed in my mind for a while, but this, this is a good, a good point too. And it's a point about, and I think it's part, maybe part of this larger theme of like pouring technology on and thinking nothing can go wrong is, you know, we can't support that either. And I mean, it's also, I think on a smaller scale, the whole issue of going, you know, incorporating social media, um, there's upsides and downsides to that. And those risks are not randomly or equally distributed. that you know, for for some groups of students, it is much riskier, and they're going to face a lot more more pushback and even har- harassment uh, publicly. And we can and that online discourse does tend to amplify. Um, it can amplify bias. It can amplify the perceived kind of sharpness or rudeness of what's being said. It tends to disinhibit us, as I talk about in the in the book, um, in some interesting ways that can sometimes be good and can sometimes be very bad. so yeah, I you know I wish there were a simple answer between uh, you know, here's all these worst case scenarios, and we still we do want to take risks and, and you know not be totally driven by us uh, the bad things that can happen, but we we have to keep those in mind too. Um, and maybe that's another reason to be mindful of that community inquiry framework where the class isn't just a transmission of content and a checklist. It's, it's, we are, we are a group of people. We're going to try to treat each other really well, but yeah, show me a group of people, (laughs) uh, including, you know, many academic departments, show me a group of people who are going to interact together about intense issues sometimes and are not going to kind of crash into each other from time to time. So, yeah, forewarned is sometimes forearmed in a sense, but uh, you, these these are some important and complicated issues that go, yeah, again, well beyond just like where's the assignments and what tests are we doing.
0: Yeah, I think I think that a uh, social media piece, adding that or not, has been a question for me. I I find Twitter in an academic sense highly engaging in in our field. I I learned so much from it. I find more people. I mean. Ingrid, I would not have known you unless we met on Twitter. And, you know, so I think it's really engaging. But I also I come up to a line of can I force my students to make an academic Twitter for this or can I force them to engage in my hashtag health 516 class? And so if they don't have Twitter or they don't want to engage in it, how do I bring that in? And I think. That's part of blurring the lines between the personal and the academic. And some people are very comfortable with that. Some people are not. Some people don't understand that, you know, when you start making a video presentation, you have to think about what's in your background. When you synchronously log into a class and you're 19, you shouldn't have tequila bottles behind your shoulder, right? So there are certain things that you know, just etiquette that you need to have. And I, I Skyped into or Zoomed into a class once and I was looking at this student and I'm like, there's so many tequila bottles in your background. Like you're, you're at a college class with your professor right there. And just kind of, I don't know, like think about what's in your background. And so I think those are the blurry lines. And And I think, again, they can be fixed with a, personal conversation about hey here's the etiquette all we and what i learned in that uh, i took an online class to learn how to teach online through mason and one of the things that the instructional designer said that when necessary use emojis right because sometimes using those emojis or smiley faces whatever limited content is available through blackboard those actually do help convey meaning. And don't try to be sarcastic because sarcasm doesn't come off right all the time. And when it doesn't come off, you look like a jerk. So, uh, Michael, were you going to say something?
3: Yeah, I was just going to add, I it's such a good question. I appreciate it. And the Pete collaborative, collaborative has done a good job of setting these norms to start these online meetings. Um, I think it said, always assume good intent. To start every conversation because sometimes you don't come off as you intend to. Um, I've been fortunate that my students are in cohorts. So by the time they reach my class, they have this relationship. But, um, you know, discussion boards can raise issues of, you know, microaggression in times when uh, race issues are in sharp focus going into the fall. Um, I do think we have to have our lens open to that and think about how we engage in discussions as one example i have certain discussion boards that i intentionally do not read um, they're posted for the students uh, themselves and i tell them that i do not read them it's for you to engage um, i don't know if i would do that without you know kind of skimming to make sure that there's not um, some issues that need to be addressed knowing that uh, at least on my campus we have 35 percent of our students are black um you know these issues are going to come up and so how are we going to look out for that and support those conversations you know and so forth i think we're going to learn a lot this fall around um around those issues as these conversations continue in, in mostly a productive way but but also we want to make sure it's a safe space for our students
4: the other thing I was thinking about, Jamie, too, is that um, sometimes I'll tell my students that if they're feeling really uncomfortable about a discussion topic or whatever, it's okay to, to not respond, but to send me a private message and just say, hey, Dr. Johnson, I I, I saw this assignment, I think, you know, whatever, but here's why I'm uncomfortable. Um, and I, I only did that a couple of years ago after in a student evaluation, a student said he didn't think it was fair that he lost. And again, these are really low stakes, three points, five points. Um, the kid still got a good grade, you know, but he felt uncomfortable, but never told me. Right. And so I was like, okay, so maybe I need to just put it out there. Um, if you're uncomfortable with this. And the other thing I do is I also have private ones. So like, in my health and wellness class when we're talking about very personal things um, i have private journal responses and i tell them that only i see them and you sometimes i wish they wouldn't tell me things that they tell me but
2: it's that safe space
5: mm-hmm.
2: well and i think i started thinking more deeply as i was reading the book about some of the practices that i do do online and i'm thinking like why did i never think of this before and One of it was, like, I often have students post their teaching reflections to the the discussion board. And my rationale for it was that I feel like it's valuable for them to see some of the things that their peers are struggling with and reflecting on and whatnot. But then I also think, like, are they going to be totally forthcoming in a reflection about particularly some of the ways that their students didn't meet learning outcomes or that they failed in their lesson if they know other people are going to be reading it? Um, myself included and reflection is a highly personal um, thing. Like we teach them like, oh, reflection is so personal. Everyone's gonna do it a little bit differently, but everybody do it this way and then you're gonna read it all because it's on, on the online lear- learning management system. So I think for me, this whole process of going online and reading this book and engaging with other colleagues about what they do and don't do has been a really reflective process for me to like think about what I do and how I do it and
5: how I can do it better or differently as well. I just was going to add that I think, um, you know, thinking about all of these things that you've brought up with, you know, feeling comfortable to share different things and, and having a discussion board for, you know, just for students. I, I think that just speaks to how important it is for us to, to build community within our classes. And, and sometimes that's possible. Like we have cohorts and my, my cohorts, you know, despite what the Dean wants, they are small right now. And that's, I think that's great. Um, and so it, so it's easier to build a little bit of a community when I have, you know, 10 to 12 students at the most. Good grief. That would be amazing right now if I had 10 students. Um, but, you know, a, a small, a small group is easier to build community with, with rather than, you know, like the other class that I have where it's, where it's 40 students in a class and, and, and they're coming from all different majors. And um, so it, you know, there's a lot of, I think it's okay for us to have these different, like personality, not personalities, but you know, spaces for our students. And, and um, it, you know, I think we try to do a really good job of that in phys ed, because we are the, you know, we're the social, we're the most social field that, you know, you can have in K twelve education. Um, So I think that's, I think it's really important. And it's, it's it's great to hear like some of the little, the little adjustments that you all do that, that now I'm going to think about as well. So thanks for sharing that everyone.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, you, you briefly talked about discussion boards, and I think those are the, I think they're a staple to almost every class that I've seen online. A lot of people use them. A lot of people use them a lot. Um, I know in my uh, fully online classes, the best feedback that I got was when I switched my discussion board topics from routine response to this students were like, oh, that was really great. I haven't had that in another class. You should do that more. And I'm like, I was just planning to go back to the way things used to be and just doing the same thing. But, you know, I'm I'm curious to see if you have interesting um, topics. One of the successful ones that I've had on discussion board was I had four students write. So I created this imaginary tweet from a superintendent about how he had tweeted out against you know, all these fat kids in his school and they need to be fitness tested and all the stuff, which is not too far away from what could actually happen. And so I had a person take the role of a principal, a person take a role of a female and male P teacher, and then a PTA president. And they had to write a formal letter to the superintendent and the rest of the people would comment. And that was really engaging and it got, you know, The people who were commenting were using the readings from the course to say why this is, why their opinion is wrong and to support and evidence and kind of provoke advocacy at the same time of hoping that what we are training is advocates. So um, if you have any other discussion topics that you've used or some different form other than respond to these readings and comment on two of your peers.
1: Yeah, they are, and and I mean, I use them. I'm using something kind of like that in one of my one week workshops that I that I teach for uh, online learning consortium. You know, we do them, and for certain things, and for a basic introduction board or something like that, it is fine. But but yeah, at that I think, especially in the time since I write online, we have seen the you know post one respond to two so many times, and it's open ended, and yeah, I think if we kind of interrogate. Uh, what is it about them? I mean, is it the novelty factor? Is it the lack of structure? Is it lack of authenticity? Um, and say, well, how can we use this, you know, very flexible tool in a very in a, in a more uh, in a way that that's messes our goals? And I love that assignment, Risto. <laughs> that um, that's a perfect example of kind of something I've been trying to preach lately to to uh, to connect the you know, the knowledge and the practice and, and so on. And this is a, an affordance of the human mind that we can take advantage of, that we are pretty good, most of us, at projecting into hypothetical scenarios. And I'm betting some of your students got really fired up about that, even though it was imaginary and hypothetical. But I think that that's the magic is is the specificity you brought to it, even to the point of assigning roles. You know, you're, you're a, a female PE teacher in such and such district. And um, the kind of clear goal. It's like, you know what you're doing. You're not just sort of airing an idea. You're saying, I want you to be persuasive in this way. And to me, the realism too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to project into this cause I, you know, this is not my field, but I'm guessing that is actually the kind of application that you, people would see in the field. And I think students are hungry for that. I don't think that students just want an easy ride. I think they want to be prepared and, I think it feels to them like they are getting prepared when we say, "Well, here's a scenario." And yeah, it's a discussion board. That's incidental to the bigger picture. Here is that you need to be able to respond to poorly informed, um, to, to really poorly informed opinions about your field, and uh, those are the kinds of things that we want. So, so yeah, the risk of pouring it on a little thick. I think that was a, that's an amazing idea. And that's what we can do when we get creative.
0: Yeah. And I think those realistic ones that you posted, Ingrid, on there about um, Sarah's book. Nice plug for the book, by the way, uh, about using case studies. I think these are really interesting because if you use these case studies, it puts the student into a realistic situation and then they have to use the evidence or talk themselves out of it or... Um, So one of the things that I'm hoping to do for secondary methods in the fall is to basically crowdsource case studies, ask secondary teachers on Twitter to give me examples of really crazy situations that happen, right? Like this student punched me in the face or whatever. I don't know. Like this student did X, Y, Z and not give the answer of what they did, but give the case study. And then video record a response to how you did it, but the students get to only see it after they post on the discussion board. And once they post on the discussion board of how they would do it, then they can watch the two-minute video of how they how they solve the scenario. So, uh, Jamie, go ahead.
2: We, well, I was just thinking about translating things that we do in person, like into online. As you guys were talking, and Ingrid made reference in the um, in the chat to um, a case study book that. Sarah is an author of. And um, when we have our students engage with those case studies, um, I, we have them do kind of a jigsaw type thing in person, but I often say to them, okay, you are um, you are Jose in this, um, this case study, tell us like what Jose might've been feeling and or you're Mrs. Smith, the teacher, tell us like what from her standpoint, like what? And so I was thinking like when with the discussion board, that would be a really good way too. is like, okay, take it from this person's perspective. What might they be feeling just to encourage some of that authentic engagement. And then other things that we do, you know, I often have students, you know, write an objective and then they pass it around and someone has to give feedback on the objective and then it gets back to them after three people have given them feedback. Um, those are still things I think that we could do in online spaces and discussion board that would, that would, elicit more authentic engagement than just tell someone they their objective is good you know like have they included all three parts of the objective is it you know achievable like all of these pieces um but having them kind of be more intentional with the engagement on in the discussion boards might make them less like annoying for the
5: students michael you said something about back channels in the chat about can you can you it sounds like you've done that can you tell me a little bit more about that because it sounds really
3: interesting so some of our students already establish back channels um and i think they talk about us in those back channels and maybe how weird we are and things like that um but if that's a more natural conversational space for them uh then instead of discussion boards we can consider assigning them to discuss things offline in some forum and just present the summary of the findings that's especially true for me like i mentioned i have discussion boards where i'm like i don't read this this is a space for peer engagement um and so if i'm not needing to kind of hold them accountable or give them a grade for doing a discussion then it doesn't have to be in that discussion board Um, and it might be interesting to see how they map out ideas in a space that's more authentic than a discussion board because when they collaborate with their peers out in the field it's not a discussion board it's you know a hallway conversation a phone call and and so forth
0: yeah it's amazing how much um how much students talk about the class without you ever knowing and then all of a sudden they're just like laughing on the same group thread and i'm all who are you texting? Oh, this is a text message thread for this class. And they just share their numbers on the first day. And you're just like, there is a lot of content happening that you don't ever see. And I think that's an interesting thing. You know, how Michael, you talked about embracing that, Hey, this is not how you talk, but you know, Michael and I have conversations on text and in person and and zoom and, but, I don't go on a discussion board to talk to Michael about a research project, right? So it's not a natural way. So why are we forcing them to do that specifically? Yes, there are some learning objectives that help through that discussion board. But I think that's a really good point of embracing them where they are naturally comfortable having that conversation and bringing it to them there. So um, I'd like to switch the topic because I know I, I want to get to this before we uh, before we end Um, speaking of Michael, I was working on a paper that is due to him in the next few days, all day today. And I'm like, I'm editing this, but I'm getting alerts and somebody sent me an email. And then I started to listen to this podcast a little bit. And then, you know, some email took me off track. And so now I'm only on page eight of this 28 page paper that I have to edit. And so I want to bring this to the distraction piece because I have realized that you know when I have a routine going to the office I know that I can block off certain time turn off my email and go through and I can block off certain time for teaching and this is mandatory prep time before class and all this stuff so I'm more way more structured and I think that one of the issues why students don't like it is because it's this here's this module it's so boring but also at the same time you have Facebook open or Twitter or Instagram. And so, so how do you address that in your classes? Is there, you know, in the book, you talked about third sh- uh, third shift, meaning after work, after parenting, after dinner, now you're logging on to, to work on this class. And, you know, I, I think in the book, you talked a lot about we expect you to log on Monday through Friday every day, which I don't think I've. I don't think I've ever told my students that that's what I expect them to do. I just kind of assume that take care of your stuff and do it. But I've even changed my classes to start on Tuesday and on Monday. So I used to have all my uh, stuff come in on Sunday night. And so Saturday and Sunday, I'd get all these panicky emails. And I'm like, this is also my weekend. And I do want to do things on my weekend because my partner has weekends off and so I want to spend time with, with her. And so I don't know if you have some ideas on how to overtly address the concentration piece because it is a little different and I can address it in class with laptops, which which means if you're in the first two rows, you're not online shopping. You have to go to the back row if this is what you do because it is inherently distracting to the person behind you. They can't not stare at your Instagram on, I don't know if you can get Instagram on a computer, who knows this kind of stuff anyway. Um, so yeah, let's talk about, uh, diversion tactics and how to, how to keep them on, on track.
1: Right. And, and, you know, and I, I, I have often, I've, I've followed the like whole laptops in class thing as is, you might know, this is another, just like with learning style. So many bloggers, like me were just like, ah, we're all over this issue. And it's all so much like, well, you know, you're sitting in a class and we're going to make rules and, and that's fine. But yeah, when learning moves online, I'm not going home with you. And that problem is not going away. It's just getting more intense. So I, I kind of frame it all in this sort of these days in the sort of 21st century metacognitive self-regulation skill, right? Just like we need, yeah, we, we all need to have an exercise plan because we live in an environment that doesn't support appropriate physical activity. Uh, we got to have a deliberate plan. And because we live in an environment, most of us, unless we are highly non technology oriented, we live in an environment that is engineered to spirit us away um, at, at the drop of a hat. And so this is something that students do need to talk about for themselves. But, it, and it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy for us. Uh, and, you know, I also, whenever I see the very Self righteous teacher centered, like take their laptops away and their phones too. I'm like, walk to the back of the room anytime you're at an academic conference. that people, you know, back when we used to have those, um, people pay thousands of dollars to go. And what are they doing? They're doing their email. If they can't, if we can't manage ourselves, they can't manage either. So, um, really creating, saying, look, we're all human. This is not a, you know, a generation this or that issue anymore. This is the human condition at this point. So you got to have a plan. If you're going to go online with serious intent, whether it's to write a paper or participate in your online class, you got to have a plan. Um, And uh, so I'm a big fan of that. And, you know, since Minds Online was written, I don't know how many of you are aware of the Attention Matters Project. Uh, That was the first thing I did after Minds Online is I worked together with uh, some instructional designers because I was going around class to class. And I had a little traveling roadshow about limitations of attention, that we don't learn by osmosis, you have to be focused to learn, and that that's tough, and what strategies. And I was doing this in this non scalable way. So we put together essentially a set of open resources, sort of like a MOOC that you can do. Um, anybody on our campus can do it. And it's just a short, uh, people assign it for extra credit sometimes, but it's basically a one or two hour module that just tackles this it just says uh and we don't do it by you know me sitting here and saying you kids put away your phone i do it by um we we have some videos and and there's like some cheap like if you've ever heard of change blindness where you distract somebody and this huge thing get by you that's a fun con- conversation starter and it works almost all the time and it's not there to really make a scientific point about that phenomenon. It's there to get people saying, look, a lot more gets by you than you realize. And it happens to everybody. So let's talk about strategy. So, uh, we also loop in probably what you all are familiar with some of the things on intentional behavior change. So the same kind of techniques that you can use to uh, improve your diet or stick to an exercise plan. You can use those same basic techniques to say, I'm always going to have my phone in my backpack during class, or, I'm gonna use a site blocker app to shut out all my social media during the window of time for study. So I, I think that we can do that. And you would be amazed at, students have thought about this and many of them have great tips to share. I have adopted some of their tips. I've learned about great apps for blocking distractions. So getting students to open up, to talk to each other and to treat it just like, you know, yet another challenge of modern life that we all have to manage. Because we do. If students are just clicking through our slides while they're watching cat videos and texting five friends, nothing that we do is is going to work. And again, I don't see it as a generational issue. I really don't. The, distra- the distraction uh, of choice may vary, uh, whether it's TikTok or email, but we're all in the same kind of crappy boat as far as as this is concerned. So, so those are some ideas. And attention matters is not a slick commercial product or anything like that but we do share I share the materials on request I have like a Dropbox file you're welcome to wade through them and anything that you find that might be useful for your students go for it and that can be a good icebreaker too it's one of those that I like to use for kind of double duty so if I'm going to have a getting to know you uh, activity it's going to be something that's maybe relatable but it's about metacognitive skills like managing memory managing attention and so on so um i yeah again uh, who who doesn't who can't get into that topic of like our phones and our <laughs> our alerts and things drive us crazy what do we do about it so anyway that's a little that's a lot but but uh, those are some ideas um about this this distraction this distraction issue and the third shift issue and if anything that's just going to get worse in the fall um, I talk in the book about that trope with the student in pajamas, like, oh, do online learning because it's super easy. And that implies that you're going to do this during kind of the time that, you know, you're going to fit it in wherever, low priority. That trope is starting to, to revive itself in marketing materials. You know, we're going to do flexible learning and it'll be anytime, place, and it'll be easy. Um, no, not necessarily. So that's just, that's another thing, too, to say. All right, right. Let's. what can we do to kind of reshape that narrative? But yes, serious, focused attention is needed if, if you're going to learn something really important and challenging like what we're teaching. So.
0: Yeah, and I think that the awareness piece is huge. Like knowing that you are distracted and knowing that, okay, you need to do something to clear your head or refocus. Like I will literally look at my phone and go, why are you looking at your phone right now? You're supposed to be working on this paper, put it down, you know put it on a charger far away, and I you know I' frankly, I didn't know that there were site blockers. I don't know maybe I should maybe I should do that that's I should know this, but I don't know like uh, but I
2: feel like if you did a Twitter blocker the whole time it was blocked, you'd be like, "I wonder who's tweeting me right now, and I need to check the Twitter. I think it would make you more curious.
0: Maybe, maybe. I, I see that.
5: made a, I made a, I made a big move just this past semester um, to figure out how to make the ding of my email stop going off because I would be working on something and you get the ding and I'm just like, ah, that's so distracting. So I think it actually took me like a few days to Google and figure out where it was and turn it off, change my entire work day. And it just one little thing. Cause the ding is just constant, you know? So I, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're coming to a to a close here. I, I feel like I could talk about this for another hour. I, I find this very interesting, not just the topic, but also how relevant it is to what's going to start happening August 23rd, August 25th, whenever we start school, this is going to be reality. So uh, maybe we can end this with uh, everybody just going around, picking one thing that they found interesting or something that they're going to implement from, uh, from the book. And maybe Michelle, you can close off with, um, telling people what they're missing out if they're not going to get this on Kindle. So, um, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll start, uh, to give everybody a little bit of thinking time. Um, I found one of the biggest things that I think I'm going to change is the, um, as the online quizzes and the formative, um, you know, not very low stakes, continuously going through. It doesn't have to, have to happen every single week, but integrating those, I think one of the barriers to it has been that I simply don't know how to make these online quizzes embedded as well as I'd like to. I don't understand the Blackboard system that well, that it goes directly into the gradebook. But I know that that, that's going to take me like an hour or two to figure out through all the tutorials that Mason offers anyway, and it's going to be a benefit for my students. So that's what I'm going to work on. So uh, let's go around the way that I can see. And so, Ingrid, go ahead. So
4: I have lots of folded down pages, Um, so I I, I agree the uh, the the low stakes assessment thing. is, is for sure. But then the other thing that I really liked was just even some of these tips about how to make, um, like avoid using color to convey meaning, hide or delete things that you're not using on your management system, and self-pacing. You know, like why do I have to be so rigid about deadlines all the time? Yeah. Right? Some things, like they have to turn things, final project in, like some things, right? And so these were, highlights for
0: me thank you i think that i think that's huge the hiding the tools i looked at the tools available for for my students there's like fifth like i don't know 50 tools available i'm like why are those available because i have not hit them good job all right jamie next
2: um i think obviously i revealed my enthusiasm about quizzes earlier so i'll pick something different um, I fancy myself quite an entertainer in the classroom you know I like to make jokes and engage with my students in those ways and I found that when I moved online I tried to do the same thing in the content I was producing and so I had memes and gifts and like all of these things and I can't remember which part of the book it was I, I think it might have even been attention but that you talk about how some of these things actually distract away from what the content is that you're trying to do. And so I I really kind of had to rethink keeping things simple and clean um, as a way for the, the information to actually get conveyed versus adding in all of these bells and whistles that are just going to distract them. And that wasn't something I'd ever thought about. I thought, oh, they're going to look at this because there's like, you know, um, like, a a dancing clown or like something like it's going to just get them to want to watch this or look at this. And I didn't think about the distracting properties. So I think that's something for me is really going through and just making sure that it's, um, clean, um, easy to access and, and not distracting, but still visually appealing.
0: Yeah. Jamie, I, I think that was a great part in the book. I completely, agree and I and I've realized when uh so when you sit on on master's thesis defenses or something like that and they put like a gif on there or just like a picture and that just like keeps on repeating and I just lose focus I'm just watching it and I'm going what what is she saying how does this picture relate to anything about you know s- squat or some some like you know, term or whatever that they're teaching it has nothing to do with it. And it is very distracting. So, uh, great, great call. Uh, Sarah.
5: So I think the focus that I'm going to take into this fall is, is, um, twofold. I think I'm going to really focus on building community in a more, um, authentic way rather than the, tell me about yourself discussion board and, and doing some activities. And, and I'm, I'm saying this multiple times so that it becomes true, but I am going to um, try to integrate at least one new piece of technology that's not a burden to students, but, you know, probably the old Flipgrid to just enhance, you know, learning because I think I've taught several classes for several years in this sort of the same way and it's, it's time for an upgrade. So I think I'm going to really push myself to do that and, and um, you know, take some of the lessons from, from reading this to, Tread with, you know, tread with caution, but, but just jump in and do it. Why not? All
0: right,
3: Michael. Um, so everything you all said, I <laughs> will say I'm going last is tough. So I'm going to give a broader takeaway, and it's just around reflective practice, because uh, we all are very familiar with best practices for K-12 physical education, as well as physical education teacher education. Like, we're in the literature. Uh, we're authors of the literature in many cases. And when I first taught online, I basically uh, just took everything I knew about face-to-face teaching and tried to do it online for a while and got by well enough. But when uh, Michelle visited UNC Greensboro, it just occurred to me that there's this whole evidence base out there around online pedagogy, and it's much more developed than um, I was ever aware. And so as we go through reflective practices and annual reviews, you know, to occasionally take a peek at what those developing best practices are, and kind of just point to them, and you know, how is this being done in my class? So here's some uh, some kind of quizzes, low stakes quizzes that I'm doing, and this is known to be a best practice, and just keeping in touch a little bit with um, how that literature is develop developing, and certainly reading the second edition of Minds Online that uh, Michelle may be considering. <laughs>
0: All right. So Michelle, what, uh, what are people missing out? What's the kind of big takeaway from this book?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I don't think I could have said it better. I think that really there's, there's two threads here that are particularly important. And, and yeah, I mean retrieval practice It's, it's not a book entirely about retrieval practice. But again, if you're not taking advantage of that, that's probably the best dovetailing of technology and cognitive psychology that there is. Not the only one, but it's probably the, the strongest one. So, so yeah, how can we do that? Um, well, and I think some of the other nuances around around memory as well, um, that articulation between memory and thinking, and you know, making it okay to have a knowledge base is part of your goals as a teacher. And and I don't know if there's going to be a second edition of Minds Online. I guess it's not up to me, uh, but I'm working on a book right now that about uh, memory and technology and some implications for teaching. So I'm having a lot of fun with that, but that's gonna be 2021 before that comes out and that's, that's optimistic. So, so yeah, that's really very much on my mind. Um, but I think the other thing here is being purpose-driven. You know, I'm not gonna go out and say, well, basically any, pick a framework because they're all the same. I, I think they're not, but just having some kind of a conceptual framework As as you said, to get us out of replication mode or imitation mode or whatever we want to call that of like, okay, I, you know, my keyboard shortcut to go to online is that I say, all right, I lecture. How do I make lectures online? Um, You know, I do an exam. How do I do this exact same exam online? Breaking it down and saying, yeah, why are we taking an exam in the first place? What is the point of that? Um, you know, lectures are not awful, but what's the point of having a lecture? If it's to convey content in a very particular way, then let's say, you know, how can we do that other than putting a camera in front of you in a classroom and, and literally doing that? So I, I think getting out of that mode is the other really important thing. And if people can do that by having this cognitive framework where, the, where I ask them, okay, let's look at in terms of attention, memory, and thought processes, what's going on in the head and what do we know about that? If that framework is what gets people moving to say, I'm gonna do this more powerful goal-directed stuff, great. Um, but it's not the only game in town. I mean, if it's universal design for learning, if it's backward design, community of inquiry, having a conceptual framework is is uh, what I've seen time and again to be the thing that does really get us moving forward. Even when we're incredibly skilled already, that's what can bring people to something fresh. So. Um, those are some of the the things that i would I would hope that we would take away from it. and and you all are are, are really, uh, I think, uncovering that already and revealing that in the discussions you're already having. So yeah, glad to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I, we really appreciate you coming on. i I found this very informative. and I mean it, as far as book clubs go, it's the best book club I've ever been a part of. So, Uh, the book again is Minds Online Teaching Effectively with Technology by Dr. Michelle Miller. Um, you can find it on a Kindle version right now. And then when they print some more, uh, you can probably find it in bookstores. Uh, but if anybody needs my copy, you can borrow it from me. And, um, thanks again for everybody joining us.